Section 6 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Line 101. The soldiers that were forced to fight, if they survived, got honor by it. So unaccountable is the desire to be thought well of in men, that though they are dragged into the war against their will, and some of them for their crimes, and are compelled to fight with threats, and often blows, yet they would be esteemed for what they would have avoided, if it had been in their power. Whereas, if reason in man was of equal weight with his pride, he could never be pleased with praises, which he is conscious he does not deserve. By honor, in its proper and genuine signification, we mean nothing else but the good opinion of others, which is counted more or less substantial, the more or less noise or bustle there is made about the demonstration of it. And when we say the sovereign is the fountain of honor, it signifies that he has the power, by titles or ceremonies, or both together, to stamp a mark upon whom he pleases, that shall be as current as his coin, and procure the owner the good opinion of everybody, whether he deserves it or not. The reverse of honor is dishonor, or ignominy, which consists in the bad opinion and contempt of others. And as the first is counted a reward for good actions, so this is esteemed a punishment for bad ones, and the more or less public or heinous the matter is in which this contempt of others is shown, the more or less the person so suffering is degraded by it. This ignominy is likewise called shame, from the effect it produces. For though the good and evil of honor and dishonor are imaginary, yet there is a reality in shame, as it signifies a passion, that has its proper symptoms, overrules our reason, and requires as much labor and self-denial to be subdued as any of the rest. And since the most important actions of life often are regulated according to the influence this passion has upon us, a thorough understanding of it must help to illustrate the notions the world has of honor and ignominy. I shall therefore describe it at large. First, to define the passion of shame, I think it may be called a sorrowful reflection on our own unworthiness, proceeding from an apprehension that others either do or might, if they knew all, deservedly despise us. The only objection of weight that can be raised against this definition is that innocent virgins are often ashamed and blush when they are guilty of no crime and can give no manner of reason for this frailty, and that men are often ashamed for others, for, or with whom, they have neither friendship or affinity, and consequently that there may be a thousand instances of shame given to which the words of the definition are not applicable. To answer this, I would have it first considered that the modesty of women is the result of custom and education, by which all unfashionable denudations and filthy expressions are rendered frightful and abominable to them, and notwithstanding this, the most virtuous young woman alive will often, in spite of her teeth, have thoughts and confused ideas of things arise in her imagination, which she would not reveal to some people for a thousand worlds. Then, I say, that when obscene words are spoken in the presence of an unexperienced virgin, she is afraid that somebody will reckon her to understand what they mean, and consequently that she understands this and that and several things which she desires to be thought ignorant of. The reflecting on this, and that thoughts are forming to her disadvantage, brings upon her that passion which we call shame, and whatever can sting her, though never so remote from lewdness, upon that set of thoughts I hinted, and which she thinks criminal, will have the same effect, especially before men, as long as her modesty lasts. 
To try the truth of this, let them talk as much body as they please in the room next to the same virtuous young woman, where she is sure that she is undiscovered, and she will hear, if not hearken to it, without blushing at all, because then she looks upon herself as no party concerned, and if the discourse should stain her cheeks with red, whatever her innocence may imagine, it is certain that what occasions her color is a passion not half so mortifying as that of shame. But if, in the same place, she hears something said of herself that must tend to her disgrace, or anything is named of which she is secretly guilty, then it is ten to one but she will be ashamed and blush, though nobody sees her, because she has room to fear that she is, or, if all was known, should be thought of contemptibly. That we are often ashamed and blush for others, which was the second part of the objection, is nothing else but that sometimes we make the case of others too nearly to our own. So people shriek out when they see others in danger, whilst we are reflecting with too much earnest on the effect which such a blamable action, if it was ours, would produce in us, the spirits, and consequently the blood, are insensibly moved, after the same manner as if the action was our own, and so the same symptoms must appear. The shame that raw, ignorant, and ill-bred people, though seemingly without a cause, discover before their betters, is always accompanied with, and proceeds from a consciousness of their weakness and inabilities, and the most modest man, how virtuous, knowing, and accomplished soever he might be, was never yet ashamed without some guilt or diffidence. Such as, out of rusticity and want of education, are unreasonably subject to, and at every turn overcome by this passion, we call bashful, and those who out of disrespect to others, and a false opinion of their own sufficiency, have learned not to be affected with it when they should be, are called impudent or shameless. What strange contradictions man is made of! The reverse of shame is pride. See remark on line 182. Yet nobody can be touched with the first that never felt anything of the latter. For that we have such an extraordinary concern in what others think of us can proceed from nothing but the vast esteem we have of ourselves. That these two passions, in which the seeds of most virtues are contained, are realities in our frame, and not imaginary qualities, is demonstrable from the plain and different effects that, in spite of our reason, are produced in us as soon as we are affected with either. When a man is overwhelmed with shame, he observes a sinking of the spirits. The heart feels cold and condensed, and the blood flies from it to the circumference of the body. The face glows, the neck and part of the breast partake of the fire. He is heavy as lead, the head is hung down, and the eyes through a mist of confusion are fixed on the ground. No injuries can move him. He is weary of his being and heartily wishes he could make himself invisible. But when, gratifying his vanity, he exults in his pride, he discovers quite contrary symptoms. His spirits swell and fan the arterial blood. A more than ordinary warmth strengthens and dilates the heart. The extremities are cool. He feels light to himself and imagines he could tread on air. His head is held up, his eyes rolled about with sprightliness. He rejoices at his being, is prone to anger, and would be glad that all the world could take notice of him. It is incredible how necessary an ingredient shame is to make us sociable. It is a frailty in our nature. All the world, whenever it affects them, submit to it with regret, and would prevent it if they could, yet the happiness of conversation depends upon it, and no society could be polished if the generality of mankind were not subject to it. As, therefore, the sense of shame is troublesome, and all creatures are ever laboring for their own defense, it is probable that man striving to avoid this uneasiness would, in a great measure, conquer his shame by that he was grown up. 
but this would be detrimental to the society, and therefore from his infancy, throughout his education, we endeavor to increase instead of lessening or destroying the sense of shame, and the only remedy prescribed is a strict observance of certain rules to avoid those things that might bring this troublesome sense of shame upon him. But as to rid or cure him of it, the politician would sooner take away his life. The rules I speak of consist in a dexterous management of ourselves, a stifling of our appetites, and hiding the real sentiments of our hearts before others. Those who are not instructed in these rules long before they come to years of maturity seldom make any progress in them afterwards. To acquire and bring to perfection the accomplishment I hint at, nothing is more assisting than pride and good sense. The greediness we have after the esteem of others, and the raptures we enjoy in the thoughts of being liked, and perhaps admired, are equivalents that overpay the conquest of the strongest passions, and consequently keep us at a great distance from all such words or actions that can bring shame upon us. The passions we chiefly ought to hide, for the happiness and embellishment of the society, are lust, pride, and selfishness. Therefore the word modesty has three different acceptations that vary with the passions it conceals. As to the first, I mean the branch of modesty that has a general pretension to chastity for its object. It consists in a sincere and painful endeavor, with all our faculties, to stifle and conceal before others that inclination which nature has given us to propagate our species. The lessons of it, like those of grammar, are taught us long before we have occasion for, or understand the usefulness of them. For this reason children often are ashamed, and blush out of modesty, before the impulse of nature I hint at makes any impression upon them. A girl who is modestly educated may, before she is two years old, begin to observe how careful the women she converses with are of covering themselves before men, and the same caution being inculcated to her by precept as well as example, it is very probable that at six she will be ashamed of showing her leg, without knowing any reason why such an act is blamable, or what the tendency of it is. To be modest, we ought, in the first place, to avoid all unfashionable denudations. A woman is not to be found fault with for going with her neck bare, if the custom of the country allows of it. And when the mode orders the stays to be cut very low, a blooming virgin may, without fear of rational censure, show all the world how firm her pouting breasts that white as snow on the ample chest at mighty distance grow. But to suffer her ankle to be seen, where it is the fashion for women to hide their very feet, is a breach of modesty, and she is impudent who shows half her face in a country where decency bids her to be veiled. In the second, our language must be chaste, and not only free, but remote from obscenities, that is, whatever belongs to the multiplication of our species is not to be spoke of, and the least word or expression that, though at a great distance, has any relation to that performance, ought never to come from our lips. Thirdly, all postures and motions that can any ways sully the imagination, that is, put us in mind of what I have called obscenities, are to be forbore with great caution. A young woman, moreover, that would be thought well-bred, ought to be circumspect before men in all her behavior, and never known to receive from, much less to bestow favors upon them, unless the great age of the man, near consanguinity, or a vast superiority on either side, plead her excuse. A young lady of refined education keeps a strict guard over her looks as well as actions, and in her eyes we may read a consciousness that she has a treasure about her, not out of danger of being lost, and which yet she is resolved not to part with at any terms. 
thousand satires have been made against prudes, and as many encomiums to extol the careless graces, and negligent air of virtuous beauty. But the wiser sort of mankind are well assured that the free and open countenance of the smiling fair is more inviting and yields greater hopes to the seducer than the ever-watchful look of a forbidding eye. This strict reservedness is to be complied with by all young women, especially virgins, if they value the esteem of the polite and knowing world. Men may take greater liberty, because in them the appetite is more violent and ungovernable. Had equal harshness of discipline been imposed on both, neither of them could have made the first advances, and propagation must have stood still among all fashionable people, which being far from the politician's aim, it was advisable to ease and indulge the sex that suffered most by the severity, and make the rules a bait of their rigor, where the passion was the strongest, and the burden of a strict restraint would have been the most intolerable. For this reason the man is allowed openly to profess the veneration and great esteem he has for women, and show greater satisfaction, more mirth and gaiety in their company than he is used to do out of it. He may not only be complacent and serviceable to them on all occasions, but it is reckoned his duty to protect and defend them. He may praise the good qualities they are possessed of, and extol their merit with as many exaggerations as his invention will let him, and are consistent with good sense. He may talk of love, he may sigh and complain of the rigors of the fair, and what his tongue must not utter he has the privilege to speak with his eyes, and in that language to say what he pleases." so it be done with decency and short abrupted glances. But too closely to pursue a woman and fasten upon her with one's eyes is counted very unmannerly. The reason is plain, it makes her uneasy, and, if she be not sufficiently fortified by art and dissimulation, often throws her into visible disorders. As the eyes are the windows of the soul, so this staring impudence flings a raw, unexperienced woman into panic fears that she may be seen through, and that the man will discover, or has already betrayed, what passes within her. It keeps her on a perpetual rack, that commands her to reveal her secret wishes, and seems designed to extort from her the grand truth, which modesty bids her with all her faculties to deny. The multitude will hardly believe the excessive force of education, and in the difference of modesty between men and women, ascribe that to nature which is altogether owing to early instruction. Miss is scarce three years old, but she is spoke to every day to hide her leg, and rebuked in good earnest if she shows it, while the little master at the same age is bid to take up his coats and piss like a man. It is shame and education that contains the seeds of all politeness, and he that has neither, and offers to speak the truth of his heart, and what he feels within, is the most contemptible creature upon earth, though he committed no other fault. If a man should tell a woman, that he could like nobody so well to propagate his species upon as herself, and that he found a violent desire that moment to go about it, and accordingly offered to lay hold of her for that purpose, the consequence would be that he would be called a brute, the woman would run away, and himself be never admitted in any civil company. There is nobody that has any sense of shame, but would conquer the strongest passion rather than be so served. But a man need not conquer his passions, it is sufficient that he conceals them. Virtue bids us subdue, but good breeding only requires we should hide our appetites. A fashionable gentleman may have as violent an inclination to a woman as the brutish fellow, but then he behaves himself quite otherwise. He first addresses the lady's father, and demonstrates his ability splendidly to maintain his daughter, 
Upon this he is admitted into her company, where, by flattery, submission, presence, and assiduity, he endeavors to procure her liking to his person, which, if he can compass, the lady in a little while resigns herself to him before witnesses in a most solemn manner. At night they go to bed together, where the most reserved virgin very tamely suffers him to do what he pleases, and the upshot is that he obtains what he wanted without ever having asked for it. The next day they receive visits, and nobody laughs at them or speaks a word of what they have been doing. As to the young couple themselves, they take no more notice of one another. I speak of well-bred people than they did the day before. They eat and drink, divert themselves as usually, and having done nothing to be ashamed of, are looked upon as, what in reality they may be, the most modest people upon earth. What I mean by this is to demonstrate that by being well-bred, we suffer no abridgment in our sensual pleasures, but only labor for our mutual happiness, and assist each other in the luxurious enjoyment of all worldly comforts. The fine gentleman I spoke of need not practice any greater self-denial than the savage, and the latter acted more according to the laws of nature and sincerity than the first. The man that gratifies his appetites after the manner the custom of the country allows of has no censure to fear. If he is hotter than goats or bulls, as soon as the ceremony is over, let him sate and fatigue himself with joy and ecstasies of pleasure, raise and indulge his appetite by turns, as extravagantly as his strength and manhood will give him leave. He may with safety laugh at the wise men that should reprove him. All the women, and above nine and ten of the men, are of his side. Nay, he has the liberty of valuing himself upon the fury of his unbridled passion, and the more he wallows in lust, and strains every faculty to be abandonedly voluptuous, the sooner he shall have the good will and gain the affection of the women, not the young, vain, and lascivious only, but the prudent, grave, and most sober matrons. Because impudence is a vice, it does not follow that modesty is a virtue. It is built upon shame, a passion in our nature, and may be either good or bad according to the actions performed from that motive. Shame may hinder a prostitute from yielding to a man before company, and the same shame may cause a bashful good-natured creature that has been overcome by frailty to make away with her infant. Passions may do good by chance, but there can be no merit but in the conquest of them. Was there virtue and modesty, it would be of the same force in the dark as it is in the light, which it is not. This the men of pleasure know very well, who never trouble their heads with a woman's virtue, so they can but conquer her modesty. Seducers, therefore, do not make their attacks at noonday, but cut their trenches at night. Illa veracundis lux est prebenda puelis, qua timidus latebras spera tabere pudor. People of substance may sin without being exposed for their stolen pleasure, but servants, and the poorer sort of women, have seldom the opportunity of concealing a big belly, or at least the consequences of it. It is impossible that an unfortunate girl of good parentage may be left destitute, and know no shift for a livelihood than to become a nursery or a chambermaid. She may be diligent, faithful, and obliging, have abundance of modesty, and, if you will, be religious. She may resist temptations and preserve her chastity for years together, and yet at last meet with an unhappy moment in which she gives up her honor to a powerful deceiver, who afterwards neglects her. If she proves with child, her sorrows are unspeakable, and she cannot be reconciled with the wretchedness of her condition. The fear of shame attacks her so lively that every thought distracts her. All the families she lives in have great opinion of her virtue. 
and her last mistress took her for a saint. How will her enemies that envied her character rejoice? How will her relations detest her? The more modest she is now, and the more violently the dread of coming to shame hurries her away, the more wicked and more cruel her resolutions will be, either against herself or what she bears. It is commonly imagined that she who can destroy her child, her own flesh and blood, must have a vast stock of barbarity, and be a savage monster, different from other women. But this is likewise a mistake, which we commit for the want of understanding nature and the force of passions. The same woman that murders her bastard in the most execrable manner, if she is married afterwards, may take care of, cherish, and feel all the tenderness for the infant that the fondest mother can be capable of. All mothers naturally love their children. But as this is a passion, and all passions center in self-love, so that it may be subdued by any superior passion, to soothe that same self-love, which if nothing had intervened, would have bid her fondle her offspring. Common whores, whom all the world knows to be such, hardly ever destroy their children. Nay, even those who assist in robberies and murders seldom are guilty of this crime, not because they are less cruel or more virtuous, but because they have lost their modesty to a greater degree, and the fear of shame makes hardly any impression upon them. Our love to what was never within the reach of our senses is but poor and inconsiderable, and therefore women have no natural love to what they bear. Their affection begins after the birth. What they feel before is the result of reason, education, and the thoughts of duty. Even when children are first born, the mother's love is but weak, and increases with the sensibility of the child, and grows up to a prodigious height, when by signs it begins to express his sorrows and joys, makes his wants known, and discovers his love to novelty and the multiplicity of his desires. What labors and hazards have not women undergone to maintain and save their children? What force and fortitude beyond their sex have they not shown in their behalf? But the vilest women have exerted themselves on this head as violently as the best. All are prompted to it by a natural drift and inclination, without any consideration of the injury or benefit the society receives from it. There is no merit in pleasing ourselves, and the very offspring is often irreparably ruined by the excessive fondness of parents. For though infants, for two or three years, may be the better for this indulging care of mothers, yet afterwards, if not moderated, it may totally spoil them, and many it has brought to the gallows. If the reader thinks I have been too tedious on that branch of modesty, by the help of which we endeavor to appear chaste, I shall make him amends in the brevity with which I design to treat of the remaining part, by which we would make others believe that the esteem we have for them exceeds the value we have for ourselves, and that we have no disregard so great to any interest as we have to our own. This laudable quality is commonly known by the name of manners and good breeding, and consists in a fashionable habit, acquired by precept and example, of flattering the pride and selfishness of others, and concealing our own with judgment and dexterity. This must be only understood of our commerce with our equals and superiors, and whilst we are in peace and amity with them. For our complacence must never interfere with the rules of honor, nor the homage that is due to us from servants and others that depend on us. With this caution, I believe, that the definition will quadrate with everything that can be alleged as a piece, or an example of either good breeding or ill manners, and it will be very difficult throughout the various accidents of human life and conversation to find out an instance of modesty or impudence that is not comprehended in and illustrated by it, in all countries and in all ages. A man that asks considerable favors of one who is a stranger to him, without consideration, is called impudent, because he shows openly his selfishness, 
without having any regard to the selfishness of the other. We may see in it, likewise, the reason why a man ought to speak of his wife and children, and everything that is dear to him, as sparing as is possible, and hardly ever of himself, especially in commendation of them. A well-bred man may be desirous, and even greedy after praise and the esteem of others, but to be praised to his face offends his modesty. The reason is this. All human creatures, before they are yet polished, receive an extraordinary pleasure in hearing themselves praised. This we are all conscious of, and therefore when we see a man openly enjoy and feast on this delight, in which we have no share, it rouses our selfishness, and immediately we begin to envy and hate him. For this reason the well-bred man conceals his joy, and utterly denies that he feels any, and by this means, consulting and soothing our selfishness, he averts that envy and hatred, which otherwise he would have justly to fear. When from our childhood we observe how those are ridiculed who calmly can hear their own praises, it is possible that we may strenuously endeavor to avoid that pleasure, that in tract of time we grow uneasy at the approach of it. But this is not following the dictates of nature, but warping her by education and custom. For if the generality of mankind took no delight in being praised, there could be no modesty in refusing to hear it. The man of manners picks not the best, but rather takes the worst out of the dish, and gets of everything, unless it be forced upon him, always the most indifferent share. By this civility the best remains for others, which being a compliment to all that are present, everybody is pleased with it. The more they love themselves, the more they are forced to approve of his behavior, and gratitude stepping in, they are obliged almost, whether they will or not, to think favorably of him. After this manner it is the well-bred man insinuates himself in the esteem of all the companies he comes in, and if he gets nothing else by it, the pleasure he receives in reflecting on the applause which he knows is secretly given him, is to a proud man more than an equivalent for his former self-denial, and overpays to self-love with interest the loss it sustained in his complacence to others. If there are seven or eight apples or peaches among six people of the ceremony that are pretty near equal, he who is prevailed upon to choose first will take that which, if there be any considerable difference, a child would know to be the worst. This he does to insinuate that he looks upon those he is with to be of superior merit, and that there is not one whom he wishes not better to than he does to himself. It is custom and a general practice that makes this modish deceit familiar to us, without being shocked at the absurdity of it. For if people had been used to speak from the sincerity of their hearts, and acting according to the natural sentiments they felt within, until they were three or four and twenty, it would be impossible for them to assist at this comedy of manners, without either loud laughter or indignation, and yet it is certain that such behavior makes us more tolerable to one another than we could be otherwise. It is very advantageous to the knowledge of ourselves, to be able well to distinguish between good qualities and virtues. The bond of society exacts from every member a certain regard for others, which the highest is not exempt from in the presence of the meanest even in an empire. But when we are by ourselves, and so far removed from company as to be beyond the reach of their senses, the words modesty and impudence lose their meaning. A person may be wicked, but he cannot be immodest while he is alone, and no thought can be impudent that never was communicated to another. A man of exalted pride may so hide it that nobody shall be able to discover that he has any, and yet receive greater satisfaction from that passion than another who indulges himself in the declaration of it before all the world. Good manners having nothing to do with virtue or religion, 
Instead of extinguishing, they rather inflame the passions. The man of sense and education never exults more in his pride than when he hides it with the greatest dexterity. And in feasting on the applause, which he is sure all good judges will pay to his behavior, he enjoys a pleasure altogether unknown to the short-sighted surly alderman that shows his haughtiness glaringly in his face, pulls off his hat to nobody, and hardly deigns to speak to an inferior. A man may carefully avoid everything that in the eye of the world is esteemed to be the result of pride, without mortifying himself, or making the least conquest of his passion. It is possible that he only sacrifices the insipid outward part of his pride, which none but silly ignorant people take delight in, to the part we all feel within, and which the men of the highest spirit and most exalted genius feed on with so much ecstasy and silence. The pride of great and polite men is nowhere more conspicuous than in the debates about ceremony and precedency, where they have an opportunity of giving their vices the appearance of virtues, and can make the world believe that it is their care, their tenderness for the dignity of their office, or the honor of their masters, what is the result of their own personal pride and vanity. This is most manifest in all negotiations of ambassadors and plenipotentiaries, and must be known by all that observe what is transacted at public treaties. And it will ever be true that men of the best taste have no relish in their pride, as long as any mortal can find out that they are proud. End of section 6